everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Web3 Native Podcast. Today, we have another special guest who is also in Singapore. Welcome, Alex from Nansen. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. All right, and uh, welcome to Singapore as well. It's, it's been some time, right? And I think uh, you've been loving Singapore. Would you like to share some That's true. thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I've been here six months now. Came here in uh, February. Of course, I've only seen the Singapore of the COVID era. But uh, it's been really good, actually. Uh, I think the quality of life here is really high. Uh, the per capita crypto people is very high as well. So it's been good to connect with uh, lots of uh, interesting people in this space here. Nice. And it's also awesome to have you contributing to the per capita crypto people here <laughs> yeah. in Singapore. Doing my share. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And uh, adding to the diversity of the community we have here. So let's, let's start off with that, right? Like, you know, your story and your journey, because I understand it's an extremely colorful one, you know, from various types of backgrounds and then all the way like down the rabbit hole to crypto. So would you like to just uh, share with our audience? Yeah, so uh, I can perhaps go even further back than I normally do when, when I talk to people about this stuff. Um, in high school, I started performing arts. So uh, my background there was in, in music. Uh, I played the guitar and uh, music's always been a passion of mine. So I started out with that in high school. I had to do like physics and maths on the side hmm. uh, because I, that was not a part of the curriculum uh, in my high school. And then, you know, later on found out that I probably wanted to do something a bit more technical or analytical. So I went into a degree in cognitive science to learn about the science of thinking. And so I learned about linguistics, philosophy, computer science, mathematics, um, psychology, many different uh, areas. And then the thing that I was most fascinated by was artificial intelligence. So I went on to do a degree in that. Uh, later on. Um, this was when machine learning started to become quite popular. It, we still hadn't reached sort of deep learning and all that stuff. Um, but certainly it was clear that machine learning, you know, had a lot of promise. So uh, from there, I went on to start my own company um, in Edinburgh in the UK. And then I worked a few years in management consulting after that. Uh, worked in pretty uh, different industries than crypto. So seafood, luxury retail, <laughs> uh, banking, insurance. Nice. So yeah, a lot of different things. Went on to uh, join a media company where I was a data scientist and data science manager. And then 2017 discovered Ethereum, uh, went all in, uh, quit my job pretty quickly afterwards and uh, moved to Hong Kong and started working in the crypto space. So yeah, been doing different things in crypto, but 2019 is when I uh, co-founded Nansen. So that's that's where that chapter begins. Wow. Maybe we should title the podcast episode, you know, from guitar <laughs> to seafood and then yeah. to, to Nansen, yeah. right? It's, it's really random. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I loved about space is, you know, like how diverse and potentially kind of uh, random, like all these people can come from, right? I think to a certain extent, like entrepreneurs all come from, like we all need a patchwork of skills, right? Do you yeah. see that all these thoughts kind of somehow connect backwards and, you know, all of the skills have come into play? I mean, I'm just curious, you know, this, this for example, your your music uh, career help in, you know, in Ensign and anything in crypto. Because like, yeah. the other parts are more obvious, right? Like, like AI, you know, and, and the dealing with data and all this is more obvious. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think sort of eagerness to learn is certainly one of the aspects and that's maybe why people have quite diverse backgrounds because you know many people in crypto are interested in different things and i also think crypto itself is very multidisciplinary and so similar to my degree in cognitive science which touch on many different fields crypto touches on like finance economics but also game theory mm. uh social anthropology to some extent mm. um art obviously now with nfts and so on so I think in that sense, um, that's probably why crypto has a lot of diverse uh, people in it, that it touches on all these different uh, fields. And so like this, I don't know if my music education sort of directly helps with, with Nansen, but uh, you know, in general, 
having an open mind, being curious, I think, uh, and having like this eagerness to learn has been helpful as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we can certainly see that uh, curiosity and hunger kind of built into to Nansen, right? Because it's all about uh, satisfying the curiosity of uh, people true. who want to understand what's happening on, on the chain. So let's go into a quick intro about Nansen. Of course, uh, many are already familiar, but for those who are not, how would you describe Nansen in like a quick summary and what can you do on Nansen today? Yeah, so Nansen is basically a blockchain analytics platform. And what we do is we pull out all the data from blockchains, primarily Ethereum, and we enrich that data with wallet labels. And so this enrichment allows you to answer questions that you otherwise would not be able to answer. So for example, what's the smart money doing on the blockchain? Instead of looking at say 200 million different addresses, and you know, seeing what sort of all the addresses are doing, you can filter it down to say, hey, what's Alameda doing? What's Three Arrows Capital doing? Uh, and so on and so forth. And in addition, you can also see DeFi protocol inflow of capital. You can see different NFT collections being popular by you know being minted quickly or having investments going into them. And so at a high level, I would say Nonsense is useful to discover opportunities performing due diligence on those opportunities, and then to defend your own portfolio by receiving real-time alerts. So those are like the three, three main things. Um, I think people feel that when they start using it and they get kind of, they understand how to use it, they feel like they were blind before and now they can see. Mm -hmm. That's what some of our customers have told us. And it's also pretty hard to go back to navigating the blockchain without Nansen after you use it. So it's a pretty sticky product. Uh, on average, our users use Nansen three days out of seven per, per week. Only so, three? <laughs> that's, that's pretty I high. Like, <laughs> yeah, for like a finance product, that's pretty high. But of course, you want to get it even higher. Uh, and and there's, I'm sure there are some people who are just literally spending hours every day, like yeah, looking at the platform, like myself, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, that's in a nutshell what it does. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I really resonate with the idea of, uh, you know, expanding your vision, right? Like once you could see, you know, the, the social signals and uh, yeah, what's happening in almost like real time as well. It's it's yeah, a totally different experience. So mm. uh, definitely want to dive deep into that. But before that, uh, I think it will be really helpful to also take a step back and zoom out on and take a view of what does it mean to look at data on chain, right, mm. or in crypto in general, because when, when people think about data, there are various types of platforms and there's various like ways to structure the data. Uh, and so for some people who are trying to get into the space, they might be confused, like which tools should I use or which combinations of tools should I use and how are they different? Mm. So shall we just uh, take uh, our audience through that journey of the data landscape in, in crypto? And uh, the, the way I think about it, at least, is, is kind of like, uh, it's almost like a value chain, right? Because we, we start from like the, the mempool and just like people submitting transactions, signing them, and then uh, the block producers then like organize them into blocks. Uh, how do we then, you know, start with some kind of like maybe some simple visualization, adding value to it, uh, adding off-chain data to it, you know, who are the different players and where does Nansen play? Yeah, so you're right, there are different ways you can look at this. Like you can look at the different customer personas and what they use data for. And then you can, of course, look at the different product offerings that exist. Um, and so the way I would think about it is, you know, our focus is on investors and, and traders. And so people who are navigating the blockchain, trying to understand, you know, what's popular now, what's hot. And as we know, like investors, speculators, traders, that is a very, very important big persona or big um, target audience. So that's been our main focus. We have, you know, a few other um, types of personas that use announcement uh, like crypto projects that publish dashboards, for example, on our platform, like Lido or Axie Infinity, um, Acropolis, and lots of other projects. But the main focus has been on like the investor. Then there are other um, uh, other products that off that focus on slightly different customer segments. And so I think the most famous blockchain analytics company is probably Chainalysis. And their focus has been primarily on you know government agencies uh, uh, and the public sector, but also exchanges, OTC desks, and so on. And the use case there is different, right? The use case is like AML. 
So you're trying to figure out, you know, you're not getting any um, sort of illicit funds into like your custody if you're an exchange, for example, or the tax authorities might want to figure out if you should be paying taxes, but you did not. So that's kind of a similar technology and similar data, but the use case is extremely different. And of course, you know, the market is, is totally different when you think about how to approach it from a business perspective. Um, you know, in our case, we have a lot of inbound, but with a product like uh, Chainalysis, I'm sure they have inbound as well, but they have to spend much more time on like active sales, right? And so on, going out to win over like the tax authorities to get, make them a client. Then there are other um, there are other like analytics and data uh, offerings out there. You have projects like um, like Tenderly, uh, like Dune Analytics, and so on that tend to focus more on the actual builders. And so um, the teams that might want to make their own dashboards and share them with their community. Um, but of course, you know it's it's a different sort of monetization strategy. Uh, it's a different go to market strategy, and I think. One thing that separates some of those um, those products is that they don't focus as much on attribution. And by attribution, I mean wallet labeling. Mm -hmm. So the thing that we have in common with, say, Chainalysis is that we label data, right? We label, and that, that adds like a proprietary label uh, level uh, on top of the on-chain data. So you can think of sort of having only vanilla on-chain data, where you just pull the transactions out and my co-founder Evgeny created Ethereum ETL, which helps you, you know, do that work with your own, like if you want to have your own Postgres database or whatnot, you can you can do that. You can run a node totally, you know, self-custodial and no no third parties or anything like that. So so you know that's the one part. But the other part is the proprietary data that you get on top of that. Mm. And so companies like Dune and others don't really have the proprietary data. Um, they, they focus more on making the uh, on-chain data accessible so that other people can write queries and so on and so forth. And there's also like the aspect of curation, right? So at Nansen, we focus a lot on surfacing the signal. We don't want to just give you, you know, 100,000 dashboards where you just cannot navigate and you kind of don't know what to look at. Mm. We try to create more like a holistic experience so that I think of it in terms of like Apple, you know, as a company. Mm. Apple has traditionally been sort of the, the sort of owner of the whole user experience. And we take the same view that we can create a guided user experience where we can, for example, link different dashboards together. And so if you're going to token god mode in Nansen, you can drill down and you can see who deposited into this contract. And then you can drill down like to who are the different addresses, right? So you can create more of a user journey. Uh, whereas other, um, other products might take more of the sort of bazaar type uh, approach or more like Android approach perhaps. Mm -hmm where it's not like one holistic user experience and it's not like one is good and the other is bad. It's just a different user experience that you get from that. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, another way to, to look at that. Yeah, it's, it's almost like, uh, yeah, like you said, the Apple analogy is quite interesting because it kind of like implies that uh, Nansen is trying to build kind of like a walled garden uh, with all the mm. necessary mm. minimum components, right? Mm. Because uh, theoretically speaking, I could, for example, uh, check out certain dashboards on Dune Analytics. Uh, and then based on that, I see, okay, there's some big transactions. I wonder who is uh, interacting with it. I can go into the contract, go on Etherscan and find those addresses myself and then check out what their balance is, what else have they done, right? Or I could start from somewhere else like uh, either DeFi Pulse or, or Token Terminal, which have some high level metrics and then drill down into the, the, the specific uh, project dashboards and uh, addresses from there. Uh, but like you said, the the proprietary part is then like having that social signaling and also all of the other components beneath it, right? So you can actually still look at some uh, project level dashboards, uh, which are created. Uh, you can still look at individual addresses or the projects directly. So it's kind of like all of it uh, is in one place. Yeah. Now, I almost wonder because in, in DeFi and all, there's, there's such a, there's some, some of a focus on this kind of like idea of composability mm -hmm. and uh, you know openness uh, uh, and transparency. Like, is is there some level of collaboration that happens potentially, or or uh, are you thinking about it between different data projects, or is it kind of like, you know, you build everything in parallel, the full stack? Mm -hmm. uh, 
Yeah, it's a good question. So I think on the first part um, that you mentioned on, you know, you could do sort of these drill downs and so on. I think there's maybe, there's two problems with that. The yeah. first one is that in many cases, you won't even be able to find out what the wallet is, mm. right? Because like there is some information that we have access to that these other platforms don't. And that could come through like very long investigations that we would do. So uh, we build up sort of like a library or a repository of information, which has a compounding effect. And so in many cases, even if you did that work, you wouldn't find it, mm. right? So mm. that's the first problem. The second problem is, if you could find it, it would still take you like 10x or more the time, mm. right? So do you want to do that for like everything you see? Or do you just want to like eyeball everything that's happening in like one place? Mm. So I think that's kind of why we, we think about doing it that way and why we feel like we, we um, provide value as a product. Um, but to touch on the composability aspect, this is it's very interesting. You know, we've taken more of a centralized approach to, to product development so far. And I'm a big believer in gradual decentralization. Um, I've seen how products some, sometimes implode if they decentralize too quickly. Um, so that's one aspect why I think I'm happy to be a dictator for a little while. Uh, but, but we are making steps to decentralize a bit further. In, in fact, I often feel like just the process of hiring people and getting people into the company feels like a decentralization effort in itself. Mm. Because now there's a lot of sh uh, features that are shipped that I'm not even aware of like before they're in production. And that feels like a, a, an obvious first step to decentralizing, uh, you know, my own personal contributions uh, and making them obviously scale, scale better, higher quality, like everything just gets better. Um, but then we also do stuff with people who are outside of the company. So we have a scouts program where people can basically become part of that program and they can help us with wallet labeling and in return, they obviously learn a lot about on-chain analytics through working with us. They get a free VIP Nelson account, and they also get uh, bonus payouts every month in the form of stable coins. Because mm. we, we don't have a token. Mm. And so we don't pay out like a Nelson token in bounties like many other projects do, so we just pay them cash instead. Mm. So it's like a different, it's a different model. And that's been growing and it's been actually really successful so far. So that's one example. Then I think we want to do more decentralization on um, content creation. Mm. And so we want to sort of reward and stimulate the community to create content. That's like another uh, thing that it's not necessarily like building on top of it, but it does definitely create value on top of the stuff that we are building as a as a product. Um, in terms of we get a lot of questions about like API, for example, mm. so like does Nelson have an API? We want to, you know, use your data to do something. And we've been just speaking openly, like we've been quite cautious with that mm. because like we do recognize that one of the strategic assets we have is um, our data. And so I think, you know, I don't really see any near future where we'll just kind of open up, um, you know, direct querying access or API access to like the raw data we have. Mm. Uh, or at least like, not the proprietary part. We might do that with the on-chain part because mm. that's publicly available, so why not? Um, but we are actively working on an institutional API. So you know that means we'll probably start at the high end uh, with regards to offering the data and allow funds and so on to make use of Nansen data going forward. Uh, and then I want to think more about how we can engage builders, right? So I don't have like a very clear answer on how to approach it because you do need to consider the sort of adversarial approaches uh, or adversarial um, tactics that people might use if they have direct access to your data mm. uh, in a business like ours. Like what we sell is information, right? So mm. you can't just give it up for free, then you cannibalize your whole business. Um, but yeah, so, so those are some, some thoughts around it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's, that's a pretty fresh take. I mean, it's because uh, Nansen and the data business is 
it, it kind of in a unique position, right? Where it's, it's not a smart contract business. It's more mm. like a data business, which is already kind of like traditional, but uh, it has to be built upon uh, kind of like a decentralized infrastructure. And uh, I think we've been thinking about actually this idea of uh, centralized businesses on decentralized infrastructure a fair bit, right? because everybody's trying to go for like the DAO, right? The, the fully decentralized model, making things public infrastructure. Mm. But I mean, the end goal that uh, crypto or blockchains can bring is that in the end you know you want to still have some level of proprietary stuff right your your personal or like your own business like your own kind of like circle uh, and to a certain extent this means that some level of uh, exclusivity and, and centralization has to make sense right uh, so I think Nansen would be one of the uh, interesting cases where like it could make sense to have a centralized business that's that's still kind of like interacting with all of the other components um do you see this potential uh adversarial approach where somebody else could take you know completely the other way and say i'm now going to build proprietary databases and open it up and incentivize people to add to the tagging and then uh, therefore everyone benefit from it kind of like really public infrastructure kind of approach mm. would it still work right or, or maybe you know uh would it be slower but more resilient like you know what are some of the trade-offs uh, that you're consciously making mm. uh, by going down this approach. Yeah, first of all, I totally agree with your point about, you know, we don't want necessarily everything to be decentralized. And like, to what degree do you want to decentralize everything, right? Like, should we just be like the level of the human is the atomic unit, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like how much do we want to de decentralize things? So to me, what's important is that the infrastructure we build on is decentralized and that's credibly neutral. And there's nothing wrong with having private businesses that are centralized on top of that. Mm. So the, key, the fundamental thing is to make sure that the base layer is decentralized, incredibly neutral, in my opinion. And that's like, it starts at the blockchain level yeah. itself and layer twos and perhaps DeFi protocols on top of that. But so yeah, I, I totally agree with that analysis. Um, in, in If we think about the adversarial use case or the adversarial scenario here, uh, I think, first of all, we haven't seen anyone succeed with this. So that that's like a bit of evidence that maybe it's not so easy mm. to take that approach. I also think that curation is highly non-trivial to do when you need to have 99.99% accuracy mm. and precision. And so I, you know, I've seen examples of um, projects trying to say curate labels. Um, but none of them have really taken off to, to the extent that, that Nansen has. So I, I do think that um, when it comes to quality, but also speed, at least in the short term, I think the approach we're taking is the best. And I think that the sort of the fact that we have succeeded so far as a company is evidence of that hypothesis being true. Um, so, you know, we can think about how should the sort of taxonomy of wallet labels look like? You know, how should we structure the universe or the ontology uh, of, of, you know, how you label uh, blockchains? And that's something we can do as like a dedicated effort without having, you know, a, like thousands of DAO members like voting on it and stuff like that uh, to get it through. We can move pretty quickly on that uh, and you know with a handful of people who are highly informed about this domain mm. um, we can also choose to um, you know through the curation process I mean I don't want to use the word censor but like we have the power to decide like what we want to show mm. in the platform and so that means we can move quicker we can make decisions very fast on what to include what not to include mm. Uh, and, and so I think if you wanted to do this in a fully sort of decentralized manner, it's not trivial to um, get the speed mm. and the accuracy right uh, you know, to the extent that we can. We literally have internal metrics that measure the time from which an address is counted as a hot contract, mm. meaning capital is flowing into it, you know, and it shows up on, on our radar. The time between that happening and to us having a label on it mm. uh, and the, the label we, we distinguish between like entities which are real world entities uh, could be projects could be exchanges you know DeFi protocols venture funds etc and just like behavioral labels so behavioral labels you know is, is a little bit easier to create but like medium dex trader and mm -hmm. so on yeah um, so 
So we monitor the stuff and I think the quality and speed is, yeah, it's, it's hard to get that right in a fully decentralized system. Yeah. Just curious, what's the time yeah. like from Sorry? contract to labeling? What's the average time right now? Uh, right now, I think it takes roughly uh, half an hour or something like that on average. 24-7? Yeah, 24-7. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I, I have to look, go, go back and look at the exact point. It does obviously fluctuate a bit, but we the goal is to keep it below one hour. Mm. And so, and often that's that's enough. Like uh, within an hour of like capital flowing in, or or seeing, you know, and, and also some of these labels are totally automated, right? Mm. So we don't even need to manually. I mean, not just some of them. Actually, most of them are. Mm. So if there's a new Uniswap pool within the same block, we will have tagged it up as like a Uniswap pool with the, these different two assets, which you can see on chain. Uh, but the tricky thing is when you have like new stuff like staking uh, pools or you know yield farms, NFT collections, which sometimes you can read out directly from the contract. Mm. Other times you need to do some manual work. Uh, so yeah, that's we try to keep it below one hour on average. Amazing, amazing. All right, let's let's switch tracks a little bit and, and talk about exactly what we're doing, right? Which is the labeling, right? This is the meat of uh, what uh, Nansen's secret sauce is. Uh, if I understand it correctly. Mm -hmm. And uh, like you mentioned, you know, a lot of it is labeling projects, of course, right? Making sure that we know uh, if capital is flowing, where is it going? And then also uh, labeling the people or which may be institutions, which if they're funds, right, uh, could be, you know, say Alameda uh, or another exchange. Uh, and and what, what are the capital, what's capital like, like flowing in and out or like what are the hedge funds and trading firms doing? Uh, but of course, it also touches on individuals and we label them right, like um, Dex uh, traders or, you know, s could be smart money, uh, millionaires, uh, participants in XYZ projects, right? Mm. There are all sorts of labels. So uh, I think here's where we come to an interesting point where I think the topic of privacy and, and transparency has been discussed uh, many times, right? And personally, I do think that there's a certain bias in the crypto space towards radical transparency mm. uh, because that is the, the core ethos of uh, crypto in the first place, right? right? Because it's transparent and immutable and therefore you know, we can well trust each other or make it trustless. Uh, however, this uh, may or may not apply to, to individuals, right? And there's, there's, it's kind of a gray area, but we still need to draw some lines. Mm. And in a way, Nansen is forced to make this decision every single day, every time you decide on which label uh, yeah. to, to tag on or to remove, right? So how are you drawing this line uh, today in a, in a, on a very practical level yeah. uh, to protect privacy versus kind of like providing insight? Yeah, I, I love this, uh, this question. Uh, it's something we think a lot about. So the first distinction you have to draw is between individuals and corporations. Individuals have certain privacy rights um, which are stipulated, you know, in regulations and law. Uh, and you can't uh, even, you know, if, if you wanted to sort of uh, try to do something differently, you have to obviously follow those, right? Just beyond like the ethical aspects and so on. So that's a, that's a huge distinction. And our primary focus is on anything that is not an individual when it comes to labeling entities. Mm. And so that's where we put in, you know, the bulk of our efforts um, we don't chase down sort of individuals in their wallets. We have labeled a few individuals uh, under certain circumstances. For example, if someone um, shares their address and says, hey, I'm a multi-sig signer for this project, mm -hmm. I'm a DAO member, uh, or you know, I'm an NFT collector, you know, look at my collection. Uh, in those cases, we are happy to label the individuals. Mm -hmm. um, and if those individuals came to us and they said, hey, I wanted to remove that label, not only would we happily do that, but we would have to do it because you have a right to be forgotten. Mm. So, so that's kind of on the individual side. Many people think about this, and I think some people actually sort of erroneously believe that we try to somehow chase down individuals and label their wallets, and, and we actually don't. Mm. Um, you don't check their IP address and find no. their, uh, oh, no, no, <laughs> their no, no. real yeah, person. Yeah, that's, that's, that's another good question though. Like, um, would we use customer data, right, to yeah. label addresses? And we would definitely not do that, because yeah. like, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. Mm. You know, that's just a great way to alienate your customers and like drive them away. So we've had that question come up a few times, like, hey, would you, would you label addresses, um, you know, our addresses because we looked at them in Wallet Profiler or, or like, or even, 
if they paid us with crypto mm. like would we use the transaction to label them and like it just doesn't make any sense for us as a business so, to do that nensen user is not a label <laughs> no 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 okay. not at all i mean, I mean like i mean you could sort of imagine that that's like not mm. super in, invasive yeah we don't do it mm. but like obviously when we have customer data that's personal like an email or like even credit card information in some cases right which if if they paid with credit card and then crypto yeah obviously we would never use that for any labeling purposes it's just first of all it's like yeah. highly unethical and it just doesn't make any sense for us as a business okay um but the focus is on like you know hedge funds vc uh, vc firms yeah. uh market makers exchanges otc desks defi yeah. protocols all that stuff and there Frankly, if someone comes to us and they're like, "Hey, can you remove this label?" Mm. Uh in those cases, we are not really obliged to, you know, in the same way as like a journalist uh writes a piece about a company mm. which is critical. Mm. If the company goes to the journalist and says, "Hey, can you take down an article?" what what are they going to respond? Mm. Right? You're not going to take that down. So that's just freedom of speech and transparency. And like we feel don't feel any uh sort of regret the remorse about labeling funds or corporations because they don't have the same privacy rights as individuals. I see. So kind of a if I hear correctly, you we're kind of minimizing the personal data unless it's publicly available, yeah. but maximizing all of the insight and labels especially regarding institutions, be it like VC firms, hedge funds, exchanges and so on. So so it's almost uh I mean it almost kind of fits into a narrative of uh, you know empowering the retail people right because it's kind of like oh you know these these institutions and uh, potentially wills are are doing you know things that move the market and I don't know about it and now I can I can know about it and I can follow it and in fact kind of keeps them accountable because you can see whenever they do things so you know is it almost like a you know is there a certain spirit of uh, you know keeping the big boys accountable in in nonsense is that a motivation yeah some people have said that we help level the playing field Yeah. And I think there's some truth to that. Uh of course, you know, again transparently, our product is not accessible to everyone in crypto, right? Like it's not a free product. Mm. I mean, it's accessible in theory, but it's not a good idea to buy an on subscription if you have $1000 in crypto. Like mm. that just doesn't make any sense economically speaking. But, you know, I would say at least 85% of our customers are individuals. Mm. And many of these um I think all of these uh you know users have never had access to analytics like this before it it you know on high quality uh on-chain analytics used to be reserved for only government agencies tax authorities and the biggest exchanges paying like hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars a year to get access to it so I do think that there's some degree of leveling the playing field here uh I also feel like it's totally okay to shine a light on the most powerful entities mm. in 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 the world and so in that sense i do consider it a form of journalism mm. um and i've often sort of people sometimes are going back to your question about like data the data landscape yeah. another uh product that often gets mentioned is like etherscan yeah. right and like how is nonsense different from etherscan First of all, I use Etherscan every day like everyone else. I love it. Yeah. And Matt, the CEO is a great great guy and he's built an amazing company. Um I think of Etherscan as the encyclopedia mm. and Nonsense is a newspaper. Mm. And so they're to- like you don't exchange one for the other. Like you want both. And so what we do is to surface the signal, right? We highlight the stuff that you should know about. but you still want to use etherscan to look up things and as a reference and to be that kind of objective mm. uh voice and at nonsense we can allow ourselves to be a bit more subjective mm. and have a bit more curation mm. Mm. so yeah so that's that's how i think about it um you know it's it is funny because like compared to etherscan we seem like a premium or expensive product mm. right i mean that etherscan is free but compared to like the, the Analyti- on-chain analytics companies that have traditionally been operating in the space were extremely cheap. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it depends how you look at it, but I do think there's some degree of leveling the playing field, yeah. That's very interesting. And yeah, I think for the individuals then the story is quite clear. Now, for institution, so, you know, for the firms out there, the OC, OTC firms, trade uh trading firms and uh VC firms, 
what does this mean, right? What is the implication mm. of a player like Nansen existing uh, to players, uh, well, including Long Hash, right? Uh, does this mean that, uh, you know, in crypto, it's kind of like VC firms and, and OTC firms and trade uh, trading firms need to expect that there's no longer any privacy uh, to be had in the space. Everything we do can and should be made public so that it's almost like public disclosure. It doesn't matter how big you are, you know, it doesn't matter whatever motivations, be it fiduciary duty, um, just like regular processes or like it's an actual trade that you're making, all that can and should be made public. Yeah, I think the short answer is yes. Uh, the, the more nuanced answer is I think the best firms in the industry have accepted this and they are fine with it. Mm. Um, if you look at Three Arrows, if you look at Alameda, many of many of these, the, you know, the greatest um, trading desks, market makers, Wintermute, like a lot of these are happy to, to stay relatively public with their uh, on-chain activity. Of course, they you know it doesn't mean that they don't do any uh, anything privately as well, right? And they kind of go under the radar to some extent, but I think they're actually happy to be relatively public about it. In some cases, you know they you know, and I've spoken to them uh, to some of these these guys about it, and they just think of it as like part of the game. Mm. You know, it's it's um, it just makes the game theory more interesting. Mm. You know, mm. and um, I think the other aspect is VC firms have always been very open about their investments, right? And like you have CB Insights, Pitch Deck, Crunchbase, and so on, that in a way are like a, almost like an analog firm, uh, sorry, an ad, analog version of Nansen, mm. right? Like Nansen is like real time. Mm. And these guys have to sort of chase up and find the deals and read the, you know, all that stuff. Um, so, so there's always been some degree of uh, transparency around this, and many companies, of course, have the shareholders public, right, in in private companies as well. Mm. So, you know, it's it, in one way, it's just kind of like added transparency to the private sector, and uh, added transparency to the whole investment process. And so, I think the you know I'm obviously biased, right? But like, I think the way to approach it is to accept that this is actually a different game and you should embrace it and get in front of it. And I think any VC firm in crypto should at least have some of their portion open, mm -hmm. you know, like some of their portfolio open, sorry, some portion of their portfolio open. Uh, and I think we will see that more and more. Uh, and I actually think this will also happen to some extent with individuals. Like people will be happy to go public. I mean, look at all the guys on crypto Twitter with .eth names. Mm. Like by definition, they're saying, "Hey, look at my wallet," right? So I think um, one thing is the aspect with funds, corporations, and so on, going more, uh, being more transparent, which I think is a positive thing. And then the other thing, going back to individuals, is that I think there's also a paradigm shift happening where. Uh, we're becoming more public about our sort of ownership of certain assets, in particular digital assets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like NFTs, right? I, I was just gonna yeah. say, I was just gonna say, like <laughs> that's like a perfect segue into uh, NFTs. Yeah. Because if you share uh, an NFT with the world, look at my CryptoPunk, you're implicitly sharing your address with the world as well. And so there's really no way you can show off these NFTs, which is like half the point of getting them. Uh, without also revealing your address. And so I think the whole sort of, there, there's kind of a paradigm shift going on right now where people are becoming more open about ownership of assets. And on that front, you have to also acknowledge that there are massive cultural differences mm. on how public you want to be about owning stuff and your, your net worth, right? Like I come from a country, Norway, which... Um, when I grew up, like once a year, we could open the newspaper and read how much money all of our parents made. Like literally <laughs> in the newspaper, wow. how much taxes they paid, what their wealth was that's reported to the tax authorities and like how much, how much tax they paid. Literally like, you know, here's like what your dad makes and here's what you know, my mother yeah. makes and all that stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, it could be tax planning and all, right? I mean, offset. That's right. Yeah, but that's the kind of stuff it's sort of intended to show, right? Ah, so that, hey, your neighbor's really rich, or like you have like a massive house, they pay zero taxes, that's kind of weird, and like that's not cool, so why not just make that public to the world? But that's like pretty radical idea in in many countries. Now they've actually changed it, because obviously, first of all, it's digital. Mm. Uh, But they've also changed it in a very interesting way where... When you look up someone, mm. they the the person you look up will be notified that you look them up. Oh. So it's transparency both ways. Nice. So it's also like an access audit log, right? But in any case, my, my point is that people come from different cultures where you view transparency and privacy, you know, in, in different ways. And you know, if we can do that stuff in Norway, like why couldn't you do have like quite radical transparency in the blockchain space? I think that's totally something that we could see especially with social media warming us up to becoming more public um, and you know sharing more information about ourselves online with practically anyone so i think that's like a a big trend and you know my prediction would be that um, people will be much more comfortable being open about what digital assets they own um, in the next few years Yeah, yeah, I certainly see us uh, moving towards that direction. And I think as we mentioned before, it is the core ethos of uh, of the crypto community almost, right? And I think just continuing down that line of how NFTs are kind of nudging people towards being more transparent. Uh, of course, now, uh, Nansen itself has uh, a few NFT features, right? NFT God Mode, Paradise, uh, these have been invaluable. I was actually tracking uh, a particular NFT project and I was telling the team like, hey, do you know that you have a whale that owns like, you know, 20% of all the NFTs? And they're like, what? We didn't know that, right? Everybody else is kind of like owning like a, a few pieces, but this guy. <laughs> yeah. And then so I'm like, I think you should go and uh, get in touch. And then like, they did manage to find who it was. So immediately go. real value right there. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, uh, coming back to this, right? So, you know, how is how are NFTs changing the game for for Nansen, right? Does this mean that you know does it lead to like more kind of like uh, acceptance of uh, individual transparency, like you said? You know, are, are we going to double down on this direction? Where does this lead us? Yeah, I think strategically that's been one of the reflections um, and conclusions that because NFTs are so tightly linked to identities, it's a smart area for us to play in. Mm. But I think the the more the bigger reason for us getting uh, more into NFTs is simply that they are uh, revolutionary and have gained a lot of popularity. Mm. And so, like we we really believe that NFTs will be a big part of bringing crypto to the mainstream. And clearly, you know, there's been tons of enthusiasm around like NFT collections and digital art and you know, um, NFT collectives or DAOs and and so on and so forth. So uh, first of all, we just want to support that development, right? Like having, giving people great tools so that they they can navigate the NFT market better. Um, But yeah, I mean, from a data perspective and and so on, it is, I think, strategically wise for us to play in that space. Um, And and yeah, so so that's that's been the, the reflection. It's like an area where we can create value, but it's also one where we can see growth on our platform. I think one interesting thing is that many people are exclusively interested in NFTs. Yeah, and so they don't care about DeFi. They don't care about you know leverage trading. They just want to trade NFT collections, and perhaps they come from sort of the gaming world, or they come from collectibles, mm-hmm. and you know. Um, or, you know, even like watch collections uh, or, um, you know, uh, luxury goods or like whatever it is. There's a lot of people who are interested in in collecting stuff and sort of speculating on these different items. Um, In addition to just being like engaged in the communities around these collections and so on. So for us, that's that's kind of interesting because it means we get more users, right? Like it's kind of like, you had one pool of users and now you can sort of add on another pool. You're not just building new features for the same customer base, you're actually adding on mm-hmm. another segment. And, you know, I think that, I think NFTs will be probably a lot bigger than DeFi if you think about the number of people that care about it. Mm. Because it touches on areas that people really care about. Mm. 
like mm -hmm. art, entertainment, music, gaming. People don't talk about finance at home, right? Like people don't care about finance. Mm. That's that's boring. Like who wants to talk about that? But everyone talks about these other things, right? Mm. Cultural things. And NFTs are much more aligned with that. So I think that's going to be a huge area of, uh, of growth for crypto and also for Nansen as a company. Um, it's also been interesting to see sort of like higher end um, market participants become interested in NFTs mm. and more and more funds are now, you know, acquiring NFTs. They are investing in NFT infrastructure. Um, so yeah, I think the future looks really bright for NFTs. Mm. Sounds like uh, it is not just kind of like following the market, but it's actually a strategic priority yeah, uh, for Nansen to, to tap into and double down on. The cool thing about uh, where we are right now is that a year ago, we were sort of like riding the wave. Yeah. Now I feel like we are also shaping the wave, yeah. right? Like we can control, we can't, obviously we don't want to control the direction of the whole space, but I think we, we can actually help um, ensure that NFTs become a success. For example, mm. we can't do it alone, obviously, and, and we don't think that highly of, of ourselves, but we can certainly make some small nudge. And I do think that some people feel like with our tools, they are better equipped. I think many people feel that way. Mm. They're better equipped to invest more into NFTs. And so in that sense, we're, uh, in that sense, we are supporting the whole NFT sector. And, uh, and you're right, it's not just kind of like following sort of the trend, we would love to be a part of actually shaping the whole space and making sure that it grows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, the point around feeling comfortable is, is quite important, right? Because, uh, you know, the concentration or like maybe there's some fake bits and it just goes back and forth between two addresses, right? You can kind of like see all these things. Uh, and, and I love to kind of touch on what, what you just mentioned about shaping the trend as well, uh, where in a way, you know, whatever you label, whatever you feature first, uh, and, you know, advertising space on Nansen could be really mm -hmm. valuable, right? Like, you know, which contracts you want to, to push forward or which notifications you want to push forward. So, you know, where, what does the future hold for Nansen, right? Are, are in a way, as a data provider, it, it works and it's extremely valuable to be incredibly neutral uh, from mm. a curation standpoint as well. Mm. But it could also be, you know, really profitable to, for example, take a certain stance or like have a certain fund uh, or be affiliated with a certain fund and, and provide uh, insights for that. Uh, you know, where are we going from here? Are we, are we um, you know, just focusing on being neutral and providing as much data and onboarding as many users as possible? Or will you somehow start capturing value in, uh, by being a participant as well or influencing <laughs> some yeah. participants? Great question. I don't think, I mean, I can say right, right away, we're not going to do advertising. Yeah. Uh, we, don't, we don't need to. Uh, if you just think about the media industry, uh, there's obviously two main ways to monetize. One is advertising, the other, uh, the other one is subscriptions. And in some ways, we're a media company and we've chosen to focus on subscriptions. I've worked in the media industry myself and I think it's a better long-term um, business model. Mm. It allows you to focus more on quality. That's, that's at least my view. So we're not going to do advertising. Mm -hmm. um, can we stay credibly neutral? That is certainly the ambition. And, um, you know, we've been approached by funds that want to do joint ventures with us, right? Because we have obviously talent and data that they could benefit from. We haven't gone on th down that direction yet, partially because it potentially introduces conflict of interest. So, you know, that is one, one challenge is something to consider there. Uh, I did mention before that I think Nansen is kind of like a newspaper. Mm. And so to what extent can newspapers stay totally neutral? It is pretty hard when you do curation to stay totally neutral. Yeah. So I, I think, I think the honest answer is, uh, we will probably never be 100% neutral because there is curation. Yeah. And so that's the same with kind of any social media platform as well. It's silly to claim that Twitter or Facebook is 100% neutral. You, you just can't be 100% neutral as long as there's any form of curation going on, mm. whether it's algorithmic or editorial. So, so I think we, of course, will strive to be as neutral as we can, but we 
primarily want to focus on surfacing the signal. That's the mission of the company. So we'll probably lean a bit towards uh, the curation aspect more than the goal of being 100% credibly neutral and objective. Mm, mm. I see. Yeah. In a way, it almost feels like because uh, I, I see some other pubs that uh, you know the members of the team have to disclose what all the things they yeah, have. Yeah. Right? So like, a funny thing with yeah. Nonsense is that we can just disclose our own wallets, ah. and people can see what we do. So I have, yeah. I have my own wallet disclosed. I mean, I obviously have several wallets, right? Everyone in crypto does, but the main holdings I hold are disclosed on Nonsense. So, you know, if people feel like I'm sort of shilling bags that you know. Uh, that that in, in some kind of uh, hidden way. I mean, just like look at my address in Nansen and you will see my holdings, like NFTs, the main tokens I own, and, and so on and so forth. So, and I want to do more of that as I go forward. And I, I can't force other team members to do it in Nansen. Maybe we could do some kind of disclosure type thing. But people at Nansen are pretty degen, mm. right? So it would have to be a real-time <laughs> tracker, and the best real-time tracker is Nelson. So like, I think to the extent that we can, I'd love for the team members to actually disclose their, their holdings and kind of lead by example yeah. and being open. But of course, I can't force them. Yeah, actually, just taking a little thought experiment on the side, right? Because uh, when you start to you know disclose and, and shape the market and things like that, and this is not only for Nansen, right? It's also like the funds and VC firms uh, whose holdings are open. Uh, like you said, there's some sort of game theory, right? You could, you know, be playing some sort of psyops and all that. Is that um, how is that being <laughs> handled at all, or is it just like it's part of the game? So you know, Nansen has to catch up. The funds will find new ways to you know do private transactions. And it kind of like uh, evolves from there. There's at least two different classes of psyops here. Yeah. One is um, sort of misleading with your own wallets, meaning you know we know Fund X owns this wallet, and then they do something like they maybe do some kind of hedged trade where on chain you can see them going long or short, but then they're just hedging it on centralized exchange and they're trying to get some kind of advantage or something. Yeah. That's like one play. And the other play is, excuse me, psyops in, um, in the form of the labeling itself. Mm. So they try to sort of mislead the labelers, right? So uh, maybe they, they sort of figure out some of the tricks we use to work out that this wallet belongs to Fund X. Mm. And then they try to do some stuff that makes it look like it, you know, this address belongs to them or it does not belong to them, but mm. it, in reality, it's the opposite. Um, I think that second part, like, that's hard for them because, like, they don't know how we do it. Mm. Uh, they might try to reverse engineer it, but, like, is that what you want to spend time on as a fund? Mm-hmm. Like, you, you would probably have to dedicate a team that's the same size as us. And we're, like, 30-plus people at this point uh, to, to really, you know, try to... Re- solve that right so so that's i think you can try it but i think you're not going to succeed um on the other side like you know the other case i I mentioned that's something i think is a sort of fundamental problem with only looking at on-chain data that's just how it is like we can't track what's going on in a centralized exchange so you can always you know end up like hedging certain things and and whatnot and we only of course claim to show what's going on mm. uh, on chain. I, I think we should probably educate users a bit better on this so they don't jump to conclusions, which I've seen has happened a few times on Twitter, mm. which you know is understandable. But it is important to keep in mind that you know just because you see something on chain, you can't always jump to the conclusion that oh they're dumping their tokens or you know they're going mega mega long on this token and so on and so forth. You have to Think of it as like data or evidence, but it need you need to look at it from different angles to draw conclusions in some cases. Mm-hmm. So it's almost kind of like easier to draw conclusions from like a macro perspective, right? Where capital is flowing, mm. but on a very specific behavior, like I'm moving my tokens from this to this, or from this exchange to that exchange, or to this protocol. Yeah. it's very hard to draw the motivations behind it, and yeah. to to that extent. Uh, individuals and also funds still have some level of privacy there. Yeah, and so I think one example of this would be, I've seen, you know, oh, Three Arrows uh, is dumping ETH because you see ETH flowing into their Binance deposit uh, account. 
and it's like in most cases that's silly like you, you you can't conclude that because they obviously have lots of different wallets and they move funds around all the time you know so it's it's you just can't conclude that they're dumping ether from from seeing that unless there was something where they had some kind of cold storage and you know you you see a massive amount and it goes all into like you know Huobi or Binance or FTX or or whatever and then like the price immediately dumps afterwards like maybe you could say okay there's perhaps some evidence for it but just jumping to those conclusions alone I, I don't think that's the right way to do it. I understand it's like it's a good way to get retweets and likes on Twitter and engagement uh, but you have to be a bit cautious and jumping to those conclusions. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. All right, that, that's a that's a nice, interesting kind of like side story. But I, want, I really want to come back to you know uh, back to the future of Nansen and what we we're talking about you know shaping and where we're going in the future. Mm. Uh, I understand you have some thoughts around uh, very exciting features that uh, that Nansen could become, right? And we we kind of touched on a little bit here and there. You know, we talked about like individuals and NFTs and like showing more personal data. And uh, I think you've mentioned a little bit here and there publicly as well about like some social functions that mm. that can emerge and uh, maybe even like going to like settlement for example yeah uh, where because it's so easily integrated it can uh, become the one-stop shop in a way yeah so uh, would you like to just uh, share that kind of vision and you know it, has there been any further clarity since then definitely so there are a few different uh, angles to take here I'd say one one angle is um, the analogy that is often uh, made between uh, Nansen and Bloomberg mm-hmm. So some people say that Nansen has kind of a similar role as Bloomberg, the Bloomberg terminal. And when people think of Bloomberg, some people think that's an analytics uh, provider or an information provider. Other people who've used Bloomberg a lot think of it as a social network Mm. with instant Bloomberg where you can message uh, different people. You can share information with say clients, counterparties and so on and colleagues. Um, But you can also do OTC trades and it seems interesting to me that, you know, if you use Nansen and you can see, hey, there's a token that I want to buy, right? Maybe you're a big fund and you, and you say, you know, there's a token that has a market cap of 50 mil. I want to, um, I want to acquire maybe 1% of this token or 0.5%, but you don't want to just uniswap it. You, know, you don't want to incur the slippage, transaction fees and so on. So what you could do instead is to try to figure out, you know, who's selling this, like who, who's, first of all, who's holding this token, who actually owns it and, and who's um, likely to sell it. Mm. You should have a way to contact the, the owner of the address, I think, right? And so this is where it gets interesting because Bloomberg, you know, has sort of like that network, but with the blockchain, you have like all the information about the kind of like the cap table, like real, real-time real cap table of these tokens. Mm. And it's not actually that hard to technically create a solution where you could message, you know, an, another address. And so we think that facilitating that process is definitely one thing that we want to do. Um, and the exciting thing about it is because it's blockchain, we can hook into you know, the back end of DeFi protocols, DEXs, um, and so on, where you can imagine the settlement actually happening, you know, within our user interface and within the user experience, mm. which makes it different from Bloomberg, because on Bloomberg, you have to go, you know, to your settlement people on both sides, mm. takes a few days, right, to actually get that right. Whereas here, you can actually just make that trade immediately in a trustless way where we are not the custodian. Mm. It's a peer-to-peer transaction using something like 0x on the back end. And that's really cool. So it's like, you, first of all, the matchmaking is useful. It makes it, uh, makes the market more liquid, easier to find, uh, easier for a buyer to find a seller. And then secondly, it makes the actual settlement process a hundred times easier. Mm. So I think that's an interesting space for us to play. And I think we're quickly getting to the point where, you know, the best place to go to figure out, you know, who actually owns tokens. And that's how some people think of Nansen. They say, you know, when I think of Nansen, I think I, that's where I find out where the tokens are. Mm. 
And so that's what they use it for already today. And some of the more sophisticated users of Thompson might already be using it in this way today, mm -hmm. right? Um, sometimes you might not know how to reach the owner of some tokens because you know they're just a heavy dex trader or elite dex trader. But if you know how to use Wallet Profiler, you can figure out um, who they have transacted with. Yeah. And maybe you know some of the people they've transacted with, right? And you can get an introduction or they can pass on a message. So I think it's already sort of organically uh, taken that role. And as we grow our labeling, as we make it easier for people to uh, find counterparties on our platform, it will organically become a social network mm -hmm. in addition to just being an analytics platform. So will you start to then you know, take fees on these trades and kind of being like a broker? Still an open question. I think if we would do this, I would say we would not charge any fees in the beginning. Yeah. First of all, because it bootstraps liquidity better, like, you know, there's no that sort of uh, rent extraction from it. But I think also that's a good way to get OTC desks on board. So it's mm. not perceived as competing with OTC desks. Mm. Rather, it's something that makes the life of an OTC desk easier without us actually taking any fees. And we already have a business model with subscriptions. Mm. So I don't think we necessarily have to take any fees at all. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of like, you know, you have to consider the regulatory aspects of this, yep. like what licenses you need and so on and so forth. And obviously we want to operate in a compliant manner. Yep. So, you know, this won't be rolled out tomorrow, but these are some of the ideas we have around that. Mm -hmm. And it can apply to NFTs as well, right? That's very true. <laughs> and with NFTs, um, I think the regulatory hurdle is a little bit lower. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so uh, for all we know, Nansen could turn into uh, <laughs> an art dealer. Uh, for for NFTs uh, potentially, soon. if you if you want to buy or sell art, you know, get in touch and maybe we can help. Uh -huh, uh -huh. All right, a lot of uh, very exciting ideas uh, and analogies being thrown around, and I think we're also you know spent very significant time. So I want to move towards the close now. Uh, all right, so before we wrap up, as usual, uh, we always ask about you know what is your overall outlook then uh, on the trends, the market, the people, what are you most excited about? What are you paying most attention to? And perhaps you even do a few shout outs if you like. Yeah, I think DeFi and NFTs, I mean, maybe this is a kind of obvious answer, but these are the two best examples of product market fit mm. for blockchains. With DeFi, you got the capital. Mm. Maybe you didn't get the people in, in terms of numbers, but you got the capital and that's you know extremely important. With NFTs, I think you'll get the people. And so, you'll continue to see um, NFTs reaching out to a broader audience through art, entertainment, social media, and influencers, not to mention gaming. I think gaming is probably the most, that's maybe the area I'm the most bullish in the short term. Mm. Um, it's not easy, like gaming is you know, extremely competitive and there's tons of talent, but if we can get the gaming studios into crypto rather than sort of crypto developers trying to make their very first game, mm. which I don't think you know is going to be very successful, mm. uh, then I think that could be huge. And it's just obvious that if you own in-game items, you should be able to bring them with you. Mm. Like that's that's how you truly own them. So that's like a, a huge area. And so, in terms of specific projects that I think are interesting, I mean, NFT infrastructure I think is very interesting. And so projects like NFTX or NFT20 that help uh, make NFT markets more liquid, I think are super interesting. And like full disclosure, I own tokens of yeah. both of those projects. You can see that on my address <laughs> in Nansen nice. if you want. Um, so, so I think those are really interesting. Obviously like Axie Infinity, which uh, I think is a great example of bringing uh, a crypto project outside of the crypto bubble to like hundreds of thousands, I think maybe they're close to 1 million daily active users now, uh, is another example. Again, you know, investor in that project, uh, not as easily, easy to see on chain because it's, you know, shares and, and vested tokens and things like that. Um, so NFTs, I think, you know, that's huge. DeFi protocols, I think there's tons of stuff here as well. And a lot of it's like infrastructure and like DeFi primitives. And there are some good people based here in Singapore, like um, Tian Lee of Pendle Finance. He's based here, very smart, does a lot of cool stuff. Um, 
and you know the the sort of blue chip DeFi protocols. You know, I'm, I wouldn't you know give any sort of prediction on what I think about the price of say like Wi-Fi or Ave or Comp or any of these projects, mm. but I think they are extremely valuable. They have demonstrated product market fit, and they will almost certainly just gain tons of capital inflow and become more and more useful and important uh, over the years to come. So yeah, that's that's my outlook. I'm really bullish on both DeFi and NFTs, nice. but perhaps for slightly different reasons. With DeFi, I think it's about capital and liquidity. With NFTs, I think it's about humans. Mm. Hmm, this is quite an interesting differentiator there. And actually on NFT as well, you mentioned NFT game, you know, are we going to see Nansen gaming dashboards <laughs> that are coming up? Maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, we are working on uh, integrating with Bronin, for example, which mm. is Axie's uh, own blockchain or sidechain. So, you know, maybe there's something to come there. Yeah. We'll probably start with just an, an, another version of our Axie ecosystem dashboard, mm. which mm. we have to rebuild because they changed from Ethereum to Ronin. Mm. Um, but yeah, maybe maybe we'll make stuff around that as well. I think, you know, with NFTs, I, I sort of, I think people understood that, you know, the analogy again to Bloomberg, like, Nelson is kind of like a Bloomberg for digital assets, you know, mm. and by digital assets, that's like a really broad category, right? So it includes NFTs, DeFi tokens, and maybe eventually also GameFi or PlayFi or whatever you want to call that that mm. sector. All right. All right. There's so much to talk about and <laughs> so much uh, that's moving so quickly. So I'm sure we'll need to have another refresh sometime soon. Thank you so much again, uh, Alex, uh, for joining us. And uh, any, oh, I think guess in the end, where can people follow you? Yeah, they can go on Twitter, A Svanavik, that's, um, that's my handle, or Nansen underscore AI. And of course, people can ape into a Nansen trial at nansen.ai. It's only $9 for seven days. So I would recommend everyone to check that out. Awesome. All right. I hope uh, everyone has enjoyed today's session and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Very nice to be here. All right. All right, guys. So wrap. See you next time.